You are listening to the City on a Hill DFW Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church or to support these ministries, visit us at cityonahilldfw.com. Bibles to Mark chapter 5, making it all the way into chapter 5. Look at the progress we're making. It's really kind of unbelievable. It's been almost 18 years since I first met my wife, Jessica. 17 years married, uh, celebrated last weekend, but 18 years since we met. Yeah, thank you. Um, we, uh, we started dating um, in 2006. She was living in Denton at the time, a student at UNT. Uh, I was mostly just doing drugs and rock and roll. Uh, by God's grace, truly, um, I somehow ended up with her. When we first met, we were actually only supposed to date for the summer. It's kind of strange, but this was sort of the plan, only for the summer. She was enrolled already at that point in the North Carolina School of Arts for film editing and uh, planned on moving at the end of summer, and so we just agreed we're going to just date until the summer's over with, and then we'll go our separate ways. And she actually did move to North Carolina. We, by that point, had fallen in love, and we dated uh, long distance, and before the semester was even over with, she decided to move back home. We got engaged on Thanksgiving 2006, married in 2007, but despite leaving the School of Arts, she's always had a, a knack for film. And, and has certainly influenced me in my love for film as well, uh, raised my appreciation for it. And so I like to think that I mostly have an elevated um, taste in cinema, right? Not movies, cinema. That is until I remember that I like movies that my wife makes fun of me for. Uh, one of which is the 2005 Constantine featuring Keanu Reeves. Rachel Weisz, Tilda Swinton, and Gavin Rosdale from Bush. Uh, if you're not familiar with the movie, Reeves stars as John Constantine, an exorcist banned from heaven, still fighting against the forces of hell. So take for a moment everything that you know about the Bible and put it over here. <laughs> and then imagine what an early 2000s Hollywood director would write about the Bible. You get Constantine. Uh, it is a horribly inaccurate picture of anything biblical whatsoever, but there's one line in the movie, one little exchange that has always stuck with me because I do think it has some biblical grounding. There's this part where Constantine is talking to Angela, Rachel Weiss's character, and, and he's talking to her about the threat of, of demons and the devil. And she says to him, well, I don't believe in the devil. And he says in harrowing tone, well, you should, he believes in you. It's really a ridiculous movie, but that line, I think, captures something about a belief that many people today hold in our modern world. Not only a rejection of God, not only a rejection of a belief in God, but a rejection of anything supernatural whatsoever. We live in a world, really beginning in the 20th century, where science and reason rule the day, where if it cannot be explained through rationality, uh, through what you see or experience with your senses, then it must not be real. And yet, the Bible is full of stories that include supernatural events. It's full of stories involving beings that transcend reason, rationality, and the senses, both good and malevolent. This morning, we pick back up in Mark's gospel where we left off last week, and we continue to examine in this little series within a series 
all of the ways in which Jesus is Lord over all things. And unlike last week, where we saw Jesus demonstrate power over that which is in the natural realm, the the wind and the seas, this week we're going to see him demonstrate power over that which is supernatural in a legion of demons. So if you have your Bibles, open them to Mark chapter 5. Let's set the stage. Look at verses 1 and 2. It says, They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately, now pause for a moment. Remember I said in the very beginning of this entire Mark series that Mark, unlike Matthew and Luke, is an action gospel. He's going to use this word immediately, like over 30 times throughout the course of this story. Immediately, the next thing happens. Immediately, the next thing happens. And here it is again. When Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. So again, I want to connect the story here in the way that the scripture does to the narrative that's being presented to us really beginning now about three weeks ago. Uh, Three weeks ago, we began chapter four, and Jesus began preaching in parables. And, And remember, he was teaching from a boat. There was a crowd of people along the shore listening to him. Last Sunday, we learned that when he was done preaching, he just sat down in the boat. They pushed off into the Sea of Galilee, and while they were on the water, a sudden storm arose and began to essentially sink them. And and Jesus, if you remember, was woken up. He rebukes the wind and the waves. They immediately obey him. The storm and the sea is immediately calmed. It freaks the disciples out. They went into the storm, scared of the storm. They come out of the storm, scared of Jesus. That was last week. The passage this morning picks up pretty quickly after these events. So the amount of time it would have taken them by boat to cross from the western side of the Sea of Galilee to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee would have been like no more than probably around three hours. And so assuming for a moment that they were on the water for roughly 45 minutes to an hour before the storm arose, they were probably only on the water for another hour or two after he calms the sea. And notice the text says that they arrive in the country of the Gerasenes. This is in modern day Kersey, which is on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. As they dock, Jesus gets off the boat and onto land, and almost instantly he is approached by a man with an unclean spirit, or what we would just refer to as a demon-possessed individual. So up front, just so we're playing with the same deck of cards here, I want to make very clear this statement so that we all are in agreement, hopefully, and that is this, that demons are real. Hopefully that's not controversial to you. Demons are real. They were real in the ancient world. They're real today. They took possession of people in the ancient world. They take possession of people today. That may freak some of you out. It should freak some of you out. It's a, it's a pretty terrifying reality. The materialistic world that we live in would have you believe that there are no such thing as demons. <clears throat> that, that demon possession in the Bible could actually be explained through modern science in a different way. So really beginning again in the 20th century, uh, actually probably mostly through Germany, through the Tübingen School of Theology, you get theological liberalism. And in this particular camp, which has become quite the movement into today as well, uh, you would see commentators in scripture explain events like this as simply mental illness. Right, So they would say the ancient world didn't have the modern insight that we have today. So so they assumed that it was a a supernatural, malevolent entity, when in actuality, they just didn't didn't understand what they were dealing with. It was really just mental illness. 
Now, as an aside, again, so that we're hopefully in agreement here, mental illness is also real. It's just not the same thing as demon possession. Now, in this instance, it is demon possession. How do I know that? Well, apart from the fact that Mark tells us as much, let me ask this question. Do mentally ill people typically have superhuman strength? Because this guy does. Verses 3 and 4. It says, he lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, broke the shackles into pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. So this brings up a point that I want to make concerning unclean spirits this morning. In the same way that we can fall into error by saying that there is no such thing as demon possession, it is equally a problematic error if we say people are possessed when they're not. So the question then becomes for us, how do we know the difference? What are some ways we can figure this out, the difference between mental illness and demon possession? Um, there are or helpful details in this passage that I, I think at least in part answer this question. This is by no means a comprehensive discussion on the way demons operate. We'd have to go into the larger biblical narrative, perhaps even in some uh, church history as well. We don't have time for that. I want to stay in the, the flow of the text. But there are indicators in this passage that I think are helpful for sort of red flags towards demon possession. The first one I've already mentioned is unnatural strength. Notice the man being held is being held by chains and shackles, and it is not sufficient to bind him. Verse 4 says he wrenches the chains, he breaks the shackles. The chains here, hallucis is a word that is a very standard term for chains for imprisonment. And they are typically pretty sufficient at doing their job. So for example, uh, in Acts chapter 12, verse 6, Peter is in prison for preaching the gospel. It says that an angel of the Lord appears to him and that the chains fall off his hands. Peter, a normal person, is not, un he's not able to uh, break the chains or get out of the chains himself. He requires an angelic being to do that for him. The chains and the shackles are too strong for him as a normal person. But for a demon-possessed person, it doesn't seem to be an issue. One of the earmarks is this sort of supernatural, unnatural strength. Another one is self-destructive behavior. Now, uh, let me be very clear about this. This one is consistent with possession. It is not exclusive to possession. Okay? In other words, there are people who are not demon-possessed. They still exhibit sometimes self-destructive behavior. Okay? Yeah, good. Uh, just want to make sure I'm not alone in that. Otherwise, it'd be very embarrassing. Um, in this case, the demon-possessed man does exhibit this, and this is typical for demon possession. Verse 5, it says, Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. This man was tormented. He continuously attempts to harm himself uh, by cutting himself with anything that he can find, in this case, stones. He's held hostage and uh, forced to self-harm. Here's the third one, knowledge of undisclosed information. This is another red flag, verses 6 and 7. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. As soon as Jesus is on land... The demon sees him from afar, immediately he understands who he's dealing with. There is zero confusion about the identity of Jesus. Now, why is this a red flag? Because Jesus has not disclosed who he is yet. So that this demon understands who he is, 
he shouldn't. This hasn't been disclosed yet. And, and, and notice the contrast from last week. For those who were with Jesus and were close to him, who were following him, versus this demon-possessed person today. Last week, the disciples are in the boat with Jesus. They're near to Jesus. They're unable to control their surroundings. They have no power over their surroundings. They go to wake Jesus up. What do they call him? A teacher. They're like, teacher, help us out. They, they don't recognize who he is. And they're the ones that the secrets of the kingdom have been revealed to. Likewise, or in contrast, you see this demon-possessed man, he's outside of the boat, he's far away from Jesus, and yet immediately he understands this is the son of the most high God. He knows exactly who he's dealing with. And there are so many important details here that I don't want you to miss because it really does, I think, there's some, there's some, there's some wordplay, there are things going on in this passage that are really, really important. Uh, notice in verse 6, what does the demon-possessed man do immediately upon seeing the Lord? It says he runs and falls down before him. Really interesting uh, word here in the Greek, proskuneo. It's a word from which we get our English word prostrate, to lay prostrate before someone. It's a term of worship, actually. So uh, it's actually translated as worship in other places in the New Testament. Now, to be clear, the demon is not worshiping Jesus here. But it's a posture of worship. It's a posture of reverence towards an authority figure, typically a king in the New Testament context, uh, towards someone that you know has the authority by their own will to either bless you or destroy you, depending on how they're feeling. And there is nothing you can do about it. They have authority and power over you, and you are kind of at their mercy. This is the posture you would carry into the presence of a figure like that, into the presence of a king. In fact, we see an example of this in uh, Matthew 2.2. The wise men from the east come looking for uh, Jesus. And it says when they arrive in Jerusalem, they ask, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? They're looking for a king. For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him, proskuneo, to bow before him and kiss the hand. I mean, that's one way you could literally translate this. It's a posture of reverence that this demon-possessed man falls down before the Lord. And notice he addresses him with the divine name, son of the most high God. And notice what he says after that, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Adjure is kind of a weird word. We don't use that colloquially in our language today. Uh, horkidzo in Greek, it's a word that means to beseech or to ask with urgency. In other words, he's begging. He's begging the Lord for mercy in the name of God. Please, Lord, have mercy on us. Now, let me ask you up to this point. If you're thinking through this, you're imagining the story unfold as we're reading it together. Who in this story so far is being depicted as Lord? Yeah, it's not a trick question. Jesus is. It's, it's very clear who is in authority, who is in control, who has the power here. It's the Lord Jesus. Keep reading verses 8 through 13. It says, For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned 
in the sea. So another detail emerges at the, at the top of this part of this verse 8. While the demon-possessed man has run to Jesus, he's fall down before him, he's using the divine name, he's begging him in the name of God, please have mercy on me. While this is going on, Jesus is commanding the unclean spirit to come out of the man. And we get this exchange in verse 9. It says, what is your name? And the demon says, my name is Legion, for we are many. So we find out, rather shockingly, that this man is not singular demon-possessed. He is plural demon-possessed. Now, this may seem strange to some of you, but this is something that Jesus actually does warn against in other places. Uh, For example, Matthew chapter 12, Jesus talks about exorcisms, and he says in verses 43 through 45, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also it will be for this evil generation. Now, we don't have the context for this guy in Mark 5, but it is possible, and I would even maybe say likely, that he had been plagued by one demon prior to this, and that because he had never submitted himself to God, perhaps this has opened him up to further problems with multiple demons. Either way, uh, he has many demons possessing him. They begin to beg Jesus for mercy. Look at verses 10 through 12. And he begged him earnestly. He begged him with urgency not to send them out of the country. And a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, send us into the pigs, let us enter them. Instead of punishing us, Lord, give mercy to us, allow us to go into these pigs over here. And shockingly, I mean, in in what is maybe the most unexpected detail of this passage, Jesus has mercy on them. Look at verse 13. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out, and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. Remember the earmark, the first one that I gave you, or second one I gave you concerning demon possession was self-destructive behavior. The demons accomplish in the pigs what they sought to accomplish in the man, which was total loss of life. The self-destructive behavior began in the man, it came to fruition in the pigs. And the Bible doesn't give us all the details here of how this works itself out, but it's terrifying really kind of either way because what this story indicates is that either within Legion, the many demons uh, were around 2,000 of them that then enter subsequently the around 2,000 pigs, or there was less than that but the hysteria surrounding the actions of the demon-possessed pigs was enough to incite the same behavior in the non-demon-possessed people. Either way, it's a terrifying detail. As you can imagine, this sight of seeing this take place would have been pretty frightening. It would have been quite the spectacle. Uh, And the herdsmen who were there watching over the pigs respond accordingly. Verse 14, the herdsmen fled, they ran. I'm getting out of here. I mean, I, and I can, I can te- testify, right? I mean, if you see 2,000 pigs that are just minding their own business, all of a sudden they run off a cliff and drown. I'm like, I don't know what's going on, but see y'all, not, the garrisons is not for me. <laughs> I'm moving. Yeah, they, they freak out. They fled and they told it in the city and in the country and the people came to see what it was that had happened. They go to tell everybody. 
And the people are like, I got to see this, right? This would have been on like Facebook Live if it were today. <laughs> and when the people come to see it, what they find is even more shocking than the original thing that happened. Look at verses 15 and 16. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. They find this demon-possessed man, who by this point is well-known to the people in the city. They banished him from the city. But they know he's, he's not safe. We tried to bind him with chains. just breaks the chains. He's crazy, right? And, and when they come to see him, they see something they did not expect to see. And you don't get it as clearly in the English and the Greek. There are three participles back to back to back that describe the state of the man. It says first he was sitting. The one who had been running around day and night, crying out with a loud voice, tormented, cutting himself with stones, is now sitting peacefully at the feet of the Lord. It says secondly, he was clothed. So that means apparently he was naked prior to this, running around. And, and this is a theme, by the way. I mean, I... This is something that you pick up on if, if you read other stories where demon possession takes place, you often find nakedness connected with it. I think of uh, in the book of Acts, the seven sons of the high priest Sceva who go to try to do the exorcism, and it says that the demon overtook them and they came running out of the house naked. It's like, what is the deal? Put some clothes on. Why is this always happening, right? And it kind of seems almost funny a little bit when, when you read the details and you start noticing the pattern, but really, what are they doing? They're humiliating the people they possess. Nakedness in public is a humili it's tied to humiliation and shame in the Old and New Testaments. You're to cover yourself. In fact, think about this for a moment. What is the first thing that Adam and, Adam and Eve do when they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? They hide. Why? Because they're naked. And God even asks them, who told you you were naked? How do you even know that? It's, 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 it's a connection to humiliation. And so the demons, when they take possession of someone, they do to that individual that which is self-destructive, both physically and socially as well. We're going to humiliate this person as much as possible. But this time when they see this man, he's clothed. And then notice, thirdly, he was restored to a right mind. Though he was crazy, he couldn't be reasoned with, he couldn't be talked to, now restored with his thoughts. And very similar to last week, when Jesus calms the storm and the sea, the disciples were afraid of him afterwards. Notice the townspeople's response in verse 15, and they were afraid. Verse 17, they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. Uh, sorry, sir, but we need you to leave, please. We don't understand any of this. I don't understand what's going on with this guy. I don't understand why these 2,000 pigs just ran off the cliff and drowned themselves. It's a little above my uh, thought processes, my power, but we know that when you showed up, this started happening. We need you to go, please. This is too much. And again, notice the parallels in the story. Mark does this intentionally. The townspeople come to the scene afraid of the demon-possessed man. They leave the scene afraid of Jesus. They banished the demon-possessed man away from the city. Now they're banishing Jesus away from the city. They had more concern over the 2,000 pigs than they did the man who had just been delivered. And I love how the story ends. Jesus gets back in the boat in verse 18. The man asks if he can come with him. He just wants to be in the presence of the Lord. I love that. He, he's been fully restored, fully renewed. He's like, Lord, I don't care where you're going. I don't care 
what boat you're getting into. I just want to be with you. But what does Jesus say? Verses 19 and 20. And he did not permit him, but he said to him, go, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. It's easy when you read this passage to read this this way, that Jesus is saying, go home and tell everyone what the Lord has done for you. That's not what he's saying. He says, go home and tell everyone what the Lord has done for you. How do we know that's the case? Because look what verse 20 says. He went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus the Lord had done for him. You want to you wanna bet this guy knew who, who the Lord was after this moment? You better believe he did. He went on to be a witness to the mercy of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, like last week, I, I think it's important that we come back and make some applications, right, from the text. It's, I, I like to work through the text and just let the story tell itself, but then let's draw out some applications. There are implications in this passage that meet us where we are today that are helpful for our day-to-day lives. The, the first one I want to begin with is very similar to one that I gave you last week. Last week I said to you, saying Jesus is Lord is not the same thing as submitting to him as Lord, right? It's easy to say it. It's another thing to actually do it. But, but I'm going to slightly amend that and take this even a step further and say it this way. Believing that Jesus is Lord is not the same thing as submitting to him as Lord. Who in this story believes Jesus is Lord to begin with? The demons do. The demon-possessed man bows before Jesus with a posture of reverence, uses the divine name, invokes the authority of God as an appeal to mercy. There is no question that these demons know who they are dealing with. They believe with every ounce of their evil being that Jesus is the Lord of all things. They believe, and yet they're not submitted to him. They're not saved. The book of James says it this way, James 2.19. You believe that God is one. You do well. This is sarcasm. Even the demons believe and shudder. You are not, let me say this very clearly, and this, this may shock some of you. You are not called to simply believe that Jesus is Lord. You are called to obey him as Lord. This is what Jesus says. Whoever has my word and keeps it, he it is who loves me. Not who believes that I'm Lord, who has my word and keeps it, he it is who loves me. You are called to obey him, to submit your life under his lordship. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords, regardless of what you believe about him. It doesn't change anything. Will you submit to him? That's the question. Here's a second one. May freak some of you out, but sorry, I mean, it's in the text, right? Saying Jesus is Lord of all means he is Lord of both heaven and hell. So often in movies, pop culture, you, you get this picture 
painted as if God is the Lord of heaven and Satan is the Lord of hell. Certainly true of the movie I mentioned in the beginning, Constantine, great horrible example of this. You have this cosmic clash between light and dark and God and his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven and the angels and you have Satan and his kingdom, the kingdom of hell and the demons and they're in this like epic clash and who's gonna win? I don't know, probably God, but we'll see. It's gonna be close. That's not at all the biblical narrative. That's not at all accurate. Satan is not the Lord of hell. Jesus is the Lord of hell. What did Jesus say in Matthew 10, 28? Don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. He's talking about himself. Don't fear people who can kill your body. Fear me. Why? because he has the power to eternally destroy. He holds the keys to hell. He told us this himself, Revelation 1, 17 and 18. Listen to the words of the Lord. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. He holds the keys. He has the authority to put whomever he desires, including the demons. And by the way, uh, this is a fact left out in Mark and Matthew's account of this story. Uh, Both Matthew and Luke tell the same story of the Gerasene demoniac that we read through the day in Mark's gospel. But in Luke's account, we get a detail that Matthew and Mark don't include in their narrative. Luke 8.31, the demons, while they're begging Jesus, it says they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. So just, I mean, while we're in the neighborhood, this is kind of a bonus truth. Hell is so horrifying that even the demons are scared of it. Satan is not the Lord of hell. He does not have authority in hell. He's not the king of hell or the ruler of hell. Jesus is Lord over all, including heaven and earth and hell. Now, Satan does have temporary rule over a temporary kingdom, but it's not hell. It's earth. It's here and now. And his reign is temporary, and it will be utterly crushed when the true king comes back to take that which rightly belongs to him. Yes. Amen. Here's a third one. It's a little subtle, but it's important. Life is worth more than livelihood. Life is worth more than livelihood. One detail that should not go unmentioned is the fact that the loss of 2,000 pigs would have been a substantial financial devastation. Uh, This is obviously Gentile land. Jewish people would have never farmed pigs. Gentile people did farm pigs. 2,000 pigs would have probably devastated the entire economy of the Gerasenes. And Jesus does not seem to be all that interested in that at all if it means the restoration of one human being created in God's image. If God takes care of the birds of the sky, he'll take care of the people of the Gerasenes despite the fact that this has happened. There's a lot of, there's a lot of ways in which this could be applied. I'll let the Holy Spirit make those connections where possible. He does a much better job of it than I do. But I would just say this as a general principle, that if your livelihood, if the things that you are doing come at the expense of lives, that's not good and you should quit it. Life matters more than anything else created in God's image. That should shape the way you think about all human life. Okay, good. From womb to tomb, 
so I'm clear. Good. Praise God. Uh, here's the last one, one of the reasons why I love this church so much. The most effective witness for Jesus is one that's been changed by him. The most effective witness for Jesus is one that's been changed by him. The healed man goes into the city. He proclaims Jesus. He proclaims the mercy of Jesus. Look at how it ends, verse 20. And everyone marveled. Why did they marvel? They weren't marveling at his words. They were marveling at him. Look at you. You've got clothes, right? You're not harming yourself. You're, you're, you're restored. What happened? Jesus is what happened. They're marveling at the works of Jesus, the mercy of Jesus. This is why, honestly, if I could just be transparent with you as your pastor, this is something that I struggle with a great amount in pastoral ministry. I struggle as a pastor with whether or not I ought to challenge you to share your faith. It's a real thing that I, I wrestle with. D do I believe in evangelism? Absolutely. You better believe I do. Do I believe that I should have to convince you to do evangelism? Not for a second. People who have been changed by Jesus talk about Jesus. If you've had your life transformed by the Lord of glory, you don't really have much of a choice. I'm not going to shut up about it. You can lock me up. Great. Fine. To live as Christ. You can kill me. Great. To die as gain. I don't care. It, it doesn't matter. You, you can beat me. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just count myself as blessed that God found me worthy to suffer for his name's sake. This is what the disciples are saying and doing in the book of Acts. This is what church history attests to. Men and women who had been changed by Jesus that were unwilling, even if it cost them their lives, to say otherwise. Maybe that's the issue with the church in America. The church in America isn't real big on evangelism. Maybe that's the issue. Maybe the issue is not with evangelism. Maybe it's with people who think they're Christians despite the fact they've never been changed by Jesus. Now, before I lose some of you, I do think that teaching evangelism, equipping the saints for the work of the ministry, as Ephesians 4 talks about, is important. And Chris mentioned at the welcome, we have a Saturday morning, March 2nd, uh, Bless Every Home initiative. We're going to be taking people out uh, to share your faith, to knock on doors, to pray for people. And, and you figure out, it, it's kind of like, like doing a dive off of the diving board for the first time. You're scared to death and you do it and you're like, wow, that wasn't that bad, right? Uh, this is very much how sharing your faith is. It sounds scary. It sounds terrifying. You do it once. It's kind of exhilarating. You're like, man, maybe I want to do that again with other people around, right? Um, I do think that that's important. I do think that equipping the saints for this kind of thing is important. Sometimes it's not a matter of a lack of desire to tell people about Jesus. You're just like, I don't really know how to, how to do it, right? Uh, and so I'm, I'm all for that. But ask yourself this question. Has Jesus really changed me? Has Jesus really transformed me in some kind of way? Do I have a new relationship with sin? Is the Holy Spirit grieved within me when I choose sin over righteousness? Do I feel a sense of needing to confess and repent when I do? Do I desire to worship him? Do I, do I desire to bow before him and follow him? If so, who are you telling it about? Who are you talking about? Because, listen to me, if he has changed you, 
people will marvel at it. People who knew me in high school, they're like, you're doing what? <laughs> yeah. Believe it or not. Because Jesus had mercy on me. Jesus is a God of mercy, a God who changes lives. And when that happens, there, there's no stopping people from talking about it. Do you get the sense from the text so far, two weeks in, that Jesus truly is Lord over all things? You know, I, I've known people in the past, atheists, people who, who kind of, you know, are irreverent about Jesus, who, who disrespect Jesus. And it's like, bro, a demon could wipe the floor with you and demons are scared of Jesus. You're not courageous, you're ignorant. We're talking about the Lord of all things, the Lord above all things. This should change the way we think about Jesus. It should change the way we speak about Jesus. It should change the way we worship him. He is Lord over all things and nothing challenges his authority. Not the wind and the waves, not the demons, and as we're gonna learn next week, not even sickness or death challenge his authority. When he gives a command, they bend towards his will and do what they are commanded to do. Everything in creation, except for you and me. That ought to be a little bit of a reality check and hopefully shape the way that we confess him and submit ourselves to him. Amen? Pray with me. Father, thank you that you are a God of mercy and that through your son, Jesus Christ, you change lives in a way that is tangible, noticeable, that people marvel at. We thank you for that. I thank you for the lives changed here. I pray, God, you would continue to change lives here and everywhere else where your spirit is, is working and ministering to your people. We confess, Lord, we do not always have the reverent heart we ought to have before you. And so forgive us of that. We know that you will because you're a God who forgives, who is merciful. Help us put the right words in our mouths when we speak of you. Help us put within us, within our hearts, the appropriate posture as we worship you as well, even tonight at night of worship, as we come to worship you and come to the Lord's table to take communion. Father, we love you. We're grateful. We pray these things in the name that is above every name, Jesus. Amen. 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 God bless you.